0: This is PRN, your as-needed dose of medical knowledge. I'm Alana Castro-Gilliard.
1: And I'm Chandler Davis. This podcast provides general information and discussion about medicine, health, and related subjects. It is not intended and should not be construed as medical advice for the practice of medicine. The views expressed herein do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Edward via College of Osteopathic Medicine or any other institution or employer.
0: The term cultural competence comes up a lot. But what exactly is cultural humility? Find out today on this podcast.
1: Hi, I'm Dr. Kimberly Christine. I'm the Director of Outpatient Supportive Care for Emory Healthcare in Atlanta, Georgia, under the Emory Palliative Care Center.
0: So I got to meet you at a conference, sorry, internal medicine. You shared a story about, you know, your own experience with cultural competence, and I was hoping that you could share that story with the class as well.
1: Sure. Basically, what I was Explaining is that often when you go to lectures on cultural competency, they give you a list of what different cultures or different ethnicities find appropriate. Kind of like a guide map. I asked the audience, you know, have you ever been sitting in one of these lectures like I've been and as an African American female, we'll get a list of Things that African Americans feel or African Americans believe. So I find myself sitting in the audience actually taking notes. And one day I was thinking, hey, I actually had to call my dad and say, dad, this is exactly what we believe. Because (laughs) it, it, you know, for, for my frame of reference and my value system, it didn't, it didn't apply to me. And I didn't remember that being part of my upgrade, upbringing or, or even a, a way in which I defined or saw myself in the world so um, fortunately my dad was able to explain yes Kimberly yes Kimberly that (laughs) that is a thing but it it just really sort of um, clicked here to me that in in my mind that wow the importance of thinking about people as as multi-dimensional and what exactly that that means and that led me to learning about or developing an interest in cultural humility And so the difference between cultural competency and cultural humility is cultural humility actually focuses on the provider's ability to meet an individual and allow them with a spirit of humility and and being open-minded to allow the person to present themselves to them to explain their experience and allows the person talking to you to define themselves versus you defining them. So cultural humility is basically what a person gives to you. Um, cultural competency tends to be what we put onto a person, and both can be um, important and informative. But I think the uh, the start of any any relationship, it's better to start in the in the framework of cultural humility, and then have cultural competence sort of inform. It'd kind of be like your, your background or like your te- textbook understanding of, oh, this is why I hear this person saying this to me. What's my frame of reference? Oh, well, I understand that. And this culture, this may be important. This might be why they're expressing themselves this way. Let me go back and ask them to explain more so I understand more.
0: Yeah, Um yeah, I guess what I learned from your lecture and you kind of touched on this is that cultural competence is very valuable in some ways, but there are also some limitations. And this idea of cultural humility is really filling in those gaps of what those limitations of cultural competence are. And I think that
1: if you pro-, if you approach each, the importance of learning what's culturally competent is kind of like a, a, road map, right? So it tells you where there may be possible pitfalls or it may be like a guidebook. Um, And so if you travel to a different country, you bring your guidebook to to kind of tell you where to go or what the the basic framework looks like, but you don't expect your guidebook to tell you how people are going to um, interact or it doesn't inform every part of your experience. Your experience is you actually going into the restaurants, or you're you're learning the language, and you're going to the markets or wherever. However, you you are experiencing um, where you where you are, the guidebook just kind of tells you where the landmarks are or might be, and gives you suggestions of what might be important. But when you're on your journey, you figure that out for yourself, and that may not necessarily jive with the with the guidebook.
0: I think that. That's super interesting because it's saying that our work isn't done by just saying, hey, I learned that cultures think differently. You actually have to actively seek what that difference might be for every individual. And that's why I think that the use of the word cultural humility instead of competence is is interesting because we're switching from this term of competence, which is, you know, a noun, a person plays a thing. Um, Mm -hmm. to humility which is an actual action and as physicians we're trying to or student physicians we're trying to learn how to act properly and know that not everything's kind of in the textbook there are things outside of the realm can you kind of speak a little bit more to the implications of changing this language from an from a noun to a more of a verb Yes, that's that's
1: a really lovely way to put it. When you are engaged in culture humility, specifically how speaking for medical students, we often ask you to go into a room and get a a medical history. And part of that history is the social history. And what I'll kind of get back is, you know, maybe their ethnicity, um, whether they have smoked or drank, and maybe a little bit about um, where they live or what their occupation is. But when, but the real meat of a social history and why you even bother to ask it is to understand how that patient functions and works within their environment. And so what's important to you as, as a medical student, if you encounter maybe Hispanic, young Hispanic male, if that's all you report, that sort of reduces that person to this one thing. When people look at themselves and define themselves, depending on the situation that they're in, they belong to several different societies and cultures. So my young Latino male, um, if he is an engineer, then he may belong to that culture. If he's a father, that may be important to him. His political associations, What? how does he feel We, you know, how does he define his spirituality, is he religious, is he not? Why do you care about all these things um, when you're learning is because depending on what's happening to the person at the time, they may cling to a part of themselves or a culture that might be informing their decision making, if that makes sense. So if you only know that my young man is a Latino male and maybe he's Catholic, it may lead you down the road as they're starting to make these complex decisions that, boy, Catholicism may be very important. They may be making decisions through a religious framework. I read somewhere that that's important to Latino you know people. However, this young man, although he might be Catholic and he may be from a Latino background, he defines himself primarily as an engineer. Numbers and analytics might be more, might be more important to him. So when you're approaching him with complex situations, what might be important to him is data, and, you know, his feelings or emotions, he may not make decisions, um, or a religious framework, he may not make decisions that way. And that gets really important when you're talking about decisions that affect um, not only the end of life, we always think about that, but also um, preferences for interventions, preferences for medications, what they're willing and not willing to do. So it's important not only to understand the cultures your patients belong to and what's appropriate in those cultures, but you also want to know how do they see themselves within that cultural framework and what do they value most, like what's on top. How if they had to describe themselves in three words, what would those three words be? And you don't, you, and it matters what the three words are, but what matters most is what order they put them in. And then you have to be mindful that when people are under stress, they may order themselves differently than they order themselves when they are not under stress. You know, there's no way for you to know that and that can be overwhelming. So the only way for you to know how a person sees themselves and what's important to them is to ask. And then everything that you've learned in cultural competency lectures will help you because that will help you understand the language they're speaking. That will help you have reference points for what they may bring, what you might uncover when you are engaging in cultural humility.
0: All of it just sounds to me like what you're saying is to get to know your patient to really know them as an individual.
1: Mm -hmm. Yep, that's it. That's it. You boiled it down to a nutshell with all my fancy words.
0: (laughs) No, I think it's great, and I think it's important that we talk about it. But the patient is an individual, and I think, I don't know if this is something that everyone learns, but in my undergrad experience, I really learned about how we've changed from this idea of paternalism in medicine where the doctor is, You know, makes all of the decisions for the patient, tells the patient what to do, to this idea of partnership within somebody's health. And I think this cultural humility, or that cultural humility, helps to guide that partnership. And correct me if I'm wrong. um, No, absolutely. Cultural humility is
1: a vital part of shared decision making. And as you move through medical school training, through your career, you will hear um, the term medical decision-making, collaborative decision-making with patients. And you can't collaborate with someone if you don't understand who you are collaborating with. More plainly said, you have, in order to make a decision with someone, you have to know who you're talking to. The only way you're going to know who you're talking to is by asking. So you would never go into a negotiation not having done your research on who you're negotiating with. That would make any sense. Yeah. You would go into an encounter where the stakes are very high and not have taken five minutes to know who you're talking
0: to. Yeah. I mean, when you say it like that, it's like, duh, this is obvious. This is, these are very important decisions that a patient is going to be making. And so I, I've heard you say a few times that you just, directly ask the patient what they want. Do you have any sort of finesse in that and how we ask the patient without sounding too forward or do you think that the patients actually appreciate that when you're direct with them? The beautiful thing about humans is
1: that they love themselves and the one thing people love to talk about is themselves. So the, so you, you think when you're, when you're just about to get to know somebody, what are the questions that you ask? You ask them. Hey, tell me what you like to do. One of my favorite questions is, when you're not feeling ill, what is it that you like to do? Um, the way I ask is, can you tell me about yourself? What's important to you? For all that happened, what kind of a person, or how did you see yourself? Uh, and you know, I think the largest thing is to be open to asking and not being afraid of the answer. The pressures that we often feel for time and to be efficient can be really troubling. And when you're going through school, there's so many different check marks that you have to hit because I think sometimes mm-hmm. the idea of asking somebody open into question like that, you're wondering if they're going to go on forever. So I can't promise yeah. you that there are some people who might have a, they have a lot to say, but most people don't talk more than like between five and eight minutes. And if you're going to make if you're going to have, make big time medical decisions um, about my care, you can give me five or eight minutes to talk.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I, I think it's something that we over very quickly, it's one of the things that in my class I feel like we struggle with or we talk about often, is that we're doing these practice, we call them like standardized patient exams, where we're learning how to interview a patient, and it's all within a time network because we're going to get tested on it later for what we call our Comlex PE. And So we get 14 minutes with the patient and then nine minutes to type our SOAP note. And it just can be very stressful when you're under that time constraint. And I understand that it's for testing purposes, but open-ended questions do seem quite scary when you have 14 minutes on the clock.
1: Absolutely, and one of the tricks I use, and it may be difficult in, in when you're working with your standardized patients, is as I'm examining somebody, I'll often talk to them. So, and, and I find it as a way of relaxing, but I'll have a conversation. So, as I'm, you know, doing the neurology exam, so how, how are you? Tell me what this has been like for you. Some, you know, tell me what did you do for a living? What was great about that tell me one thing that nobody else knows you know these these kind of and they and these questions actually develop help you develop bonds and they seem less intrusive because you're in the in the business of doing something if that makes sense so there are some patients who really struggle with that you know they're they're already uncomfortable they're already nervous now they've made you nervous so no need to be nervous you're here to help (laughs) them they need help you know the the moment you walked into the room to to assist in somebody's care you've done a wonderful thing so the worry that you're going to make things, you're not going to make things worse you're there, you've shown up so you're going to make the idea more than likely you're going to make something something better so you can relax, the idea that they allowed you to walk into the room and didn't walk out means (laughs) there is some level of of trust so you already got the interview, you already got the job so all you have to do is Go down from there. You're already coming in with the a baseline trust. It may not be 100%,
0: but most of the time, they're open to hearing what you have to say. I think that that's something that nurses perform very well for the most part um, is getting to know their patients. And we saw this statistic recently in one of our classes that nurses are one of the most trusted professions, and doctors are out there as well. But nurses were at the top of the list, and so I, I feel like there's something that we can learn from nurses in the sense of connecting to our patients. So my next question is, I, I think you have such an interesting job working in palliative and hospice care. The idea of end-of-life care for those in hospice or pain and symptom management for those in palliative care is just really interesting in that it has to be a partnership. It's very team-based. You're working with families as well as the individual's. I was just wondering if you had any sort of examples within your own practice where you have seen cultural humility played out either in a good way or playing out in a bad way. I think hearing something in practice would be a good example to understand what cultural humility is other than just a concept.
1: I can recall I had a very lovely family who was of Muslim faith. And unfortunately, the patriarch, or the father of the family, developed a terrible, devastating neurologic disease. And it was very clear that he was not going to improve. So the initial thought was to discuss this with the family, and there was a lot of concern and a lot of sensitivity on the part of the hospital and the providers to want to explain this in a way that would be acceptable um, to the family and not be offensive. So... The recommendation was to make a transition to comfort care. The wife refused and deferred to her son, and the sons, you know, deferred to the mom. And this went on, and the hospital left it alone, and this continued to go on for another week. Things began to get worse. And the decision was made by the hospital say, oh, well, maybe this is an issue of culture. So they actually got a, a very well-respected imam in the community and, and her imam in the community and her adult son to come together into a room to discuss his care. Both imams agreed that it would be completely appropriate to transition him to comfort. The son felt that this would be appropriate, and you know what she said? No. And she said it was it was a firm no. And she got up and walked out. And those three men sat there and said, "Well, <laughs> the the answer is no." So I had a really good relationship with her, and I had already asked her. I had already asked her the day before. You know what were what her hopes were and what was important, and how she was making these decisions. And her primary answer was, we've been married for 52 years. I'm not ready to lose my husband yet. And that was the reason. It had nothing to do with cultures. It had nothing to do with religion. She wasn't ready to lose her husband after 52 years. The next week, she agreed to hospice and she, and she allowed, um, everyone to bring him home. And what I learned from that experience was, you know, we never asked her. We assumed that she was refusing because it might not be culturally appropriate. We assumed that once we got the proper religious figures in place that this would be fine. We assumed that she would follow the lead of her eldest male child. But she wasn't making a decision as a a Muslim woman. She's making a decision as, you know, she just wasn't ready to lose her best friend. Yeah. For 52 years, she had been with him longer than, you know, she had been with him longer than she had not been with
0: him. When you say it like that, it's just knowing where she's coming from. It's That's the dimension of, you use the word dimension of diversity in your lecture. That's the one dimension of her as an individual that she chose as a wife. That's what was leading her decision, not as a Muslim woman.
1: Yeah, at the time, you know, they, we had, in, in our attempts to be sensitive to her, we reduced her only to her faith and her culture, or what we, what we interpreted as her culture. And she became, instead of this multi-dimensional person, she became this two-dimensional person. And cultural competence informed our solution. It was completely appropriate. to to make sure we were communicating properly to give her, you know, all the options and then also to include her religious community, which she was not objecting to. She was very happy to see them there. The answer was just going to be no. It was always going to be no until she was ready for it to be yes. And that, that, as we say, is what it is. And often in our profession, we're always looking the idea of palliative care is not to get patients to a place. Our uh, palliative care is to help patients get to the place they want to be, regardless of whether or not that is the place we would want to be or we would want them to be.
0: So it's driving things to the quality of life that they can best attain and what they want.
1: Mm -hmm. And some people choose quality, some people's definition of quality of life can be very peaceful and comforting in how we feel the traditional sense. And others choose a more difficult road for a variety of reasons. But the goal is to help them on the journey that they have chosen to go on. And I mean, that's, and I believe that that's the harder part. We all want people to have what they want, but what we really want them is to have what we want them to have.
0: So letting go of your kind of bias of what you think would be right is part of that cultural humility in a way.
1: Cultural humility may not change the outcome of what happens with your patient. Well, cultural humanity will help you accept the outcome, if that makes sense. Yeah. You with know, patients, we often say, oh, the patient's wrong. Well, no, the patient's not wrong. You're not able to accept what they're telling you. So yeah. they don't need to change. You have to change. If you're going to allow um, the patient to make a decision, you know, we offer patients choice. And as long as you're offering a person choice, you have to gamble that they might choose something you might not want them to choose. And then now what are you going to do? You still have to take care of them. And, yeah, but you but can't be tortured by it. So cultural humility allows you a, a deeper level of understanding. It doesn't mean you agree. But it allows you to understand. It gives you a framework to understand.
0: The last question I have for you is do you have any sort of advice that you'd like to give to current medical students?
1: Oh, well, one word of advice. It gets easier. But (laughs) most most importantly, remember that your white coat isn't magical. And your person, when you're walking into the room, it's just two people in a room trying to communicate and trying to help each other in some way. If you're able to see yourself in your patient and see the humanity and the person that's sitting in front of you, It'll make taking care of them a lot easier, and it will relieve some of the anxiety. And the patient will then see the authentic you. You're never going to know everything about a person. You're never going to be able to understand 100% about how they want you to communicate. You're gonna say things wrong. And you know what, the patients will forgive you for it. If they believe that you are authentic and that you do care, and that, that comes through only if you are able to communicate well. And um, I'll leave you with one last little phrase. And the, that great American prophet, John Mayer,
0: just say <laughs> what you need to say. <laughs> people, will, people will usually hear you. Thank you so much for having this conversation with me. I've really enjoyed it. You are welcome. For more PRN, please be on the lookout. If you like this episode, Tell someone about it and start up a conversation. I'm Alana Castro-Gilliard.
1: I'm Chandler Davis. And this is PRN.